Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode of American Biography is brought to you by our beloved patrons. Good news, patrons. I'm officially done researching the first bonus episode. I still have to finish the script and record it, but I'm very, very excited about it. Anyone who's not already a patron and is interested in having access to this exclusive bonus material, there's still time for you to go to www.patreon.com forward slash ambio, that's A-M-B-I-O, and sign up to become a sustaining patron. Thanks again. Now on to the show. Hello, and welcome to American Biography, Episode 23, Purge. Last time, the Marshall Court extricated themselves from a tight spot while expanding their authority when they managed to chastise President Jefferson's handling of the William Marbury affair and simultaneously declaring an act of Congress that would have empowered them to actually do something about it void, thereby establishing judicial review as an explicit constitutional power and making the court a co-equal branch in the federal government. As usual, to tell the next part of the story, we need to take a few steps back first. And this time, it starts in New Hampshire, where Judge John Pickering was acting strange. Pickering had been appointed to the U.S. District Court by President Washington back in 1795, but by 1800, something was clearly wrong. Pickering was said to suffer ravings, cursings, and crazed incoherences while sitting the bench. Early 19th century medicine lacked the understanding to identify the problem, much less treat the judge, who was possibly suffering from an unidentified mental illness. And after several years' worth of concern over the fitness of John Pickering, on March 2, 1803, less than a week after the Supreme Court handed down the Marbury ruling, the House of Representatives approved articles of impeachment alleging the New Hampshire judge had unlawfully handled property claims, and that he did appear on the bench of the said court for the administration of justice in a state of total intoxication, produced by the free and intemperate use of intoxicating liquors, and did then, and there frequently, in a most profane and indecent manner, invoke the name of the Supreme Being to the evil example of all the good citizens of the United States. Pickering did not respond to the charges, 
or provide a defense for himself in any other way. Though helpfully, his son actually entered evidence suggesting that his father was not competent to continue to serve. A year later, after having been tried in absentia by the Senate, Pickering was, not unreasonably, convicted and removed from office on March 12, 1804. Now, before we continue, I think it might be a good time to go over the basics of what an impeachment actually entails, since I've been hearing a lot of talk about it lately, and most of it is, well, wrong. So, here to help me explain the process, as if it were an after-school special, is Ben Jacobs of the Wittenberg to Westphalia Wars of the Reformation podcast, who will be voicing Little Billy Giles, while Chris Stewart of the History of China podcast provides the vocal talents for the wise and paternal social studies teacher, Mr. Randolph, who is helping little Billy find his way to removing a judge. What's the matter, Billy? There's a federal judge who I think is stupid and bad and wrong and stupid. If I had a wish, I'd wish him not to be a judge. Well, Billy, it's okay to be mad sometimes. But what if I told you there was a map that could make your wishes come true? You mean the Constitution? Yes, Billy, the Constitution. And look, there's a copy right in your pocket. Wow, look, it's Article 3, Section 1. The judicial power of the United States shall be vested... Yada, yada, yada. Oh, here we go. The judges, both of the Supreme and Inferior Courts, shall hold their offices during good behavior. Hmm... Wait, that's the opposite of what I want, Mr. Randolph. Well, Billy, you can't give up. Keep going. Okay. If you say so, Mr. Randolph. I guess there's Article 2, Section 4. The President, Vice President, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors. Well, Billy, I'd wager judges are definitely civil officers, so that means they can be... Impeached and removed. But I don't know, Mr. Randolph. Isn't it sort of vague? What are high crimes and misdemeanors anyways? That's where the magic comes in, Billy. Nobody really knows. It's whatever you believe or are able to convince others to believe. Okay, that's not super helpful, but I'll try my hardest. So anyway, how do I get this started? Look to the map, Billy. Oh yeah, here it is. Article 1, Section 3. The House of Representatives shall have the sole power of impeachment. Mr. Randolph, people in the House sure are lucky. Wait, what's this about the Senate? Oh, you mean the part that says the Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments? I wish I was in the Senate. That's wonderful, Billy. But remember, even if you were, you wouldn't do it alone. Because no person shall be convicted without the concurrence of two-thirds of the senators present. Aw, oh, this sounds hard. Well, Billy, what have I always told you? Teamwork makes the dream work. For the record, I'm inclined to consider the removal of Pickering an appropriate use of constitutional impeachment, and I've seen little to suggest otherwise. However, following as closely on the heels of the Marbury decision as it did, it can't be completely separated from the context of the burgeoning struggle between Congress and the judiciary. 
It gets even more interesting when you note that on the very same day the Senate voted to remove Pickering, the House of Representatives approved impeachment articles against none other than Associate Supreme Court Justice Samuel Chase. Now, saying that this is a judge-breaking conspiracy might go a little too far, and suggests too great a level of party unity than there was. But it strains credulity to pretend that this was just some big coincidence, and I think it's likely that while moving forward with the Pickering matter, for legitimate reasons, some entrepreneurial Republicans realized what a valuable tool impeachment might be for getting rid of other troublesome Federalist jurists. For those Republicans, the proceedings against Pickering became a sort of dry run for a grander scheme involving larger targets. To this end, the boorish and outspoken Chase was the low-hanging fruit of the Supreme Court for Republicans, and as someone with a chronic case of foot-and-mouth disease, it was only a matter of time until he gave the Republicans the pretext they needed. A little more than a month after Pickering's impeachment articles were approved by the House, Chase did just that by giving a politically charged partisan lecture to a grand jury in Baltimore on May 2, 1803, provoking outrage. It's clear from the outset that Chase's impeachment was going to be unlike Pickering's and was going to be a more partisan affair. Sources differ as to the level of Jefferson's involvement in all this, However, I feel a May 13th letter the President sent to Congressman Joseph Nicholson, one of the House managers of the Pickering impeachment, about Chase's speech speaks volumes about where he stood. He wrote, Ought this seditious and official attack on the principles of our Constitution and the proceedings of a state go unpunished? The question is for your consideration. For myself, it is better I should not interfere. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, this letter is pretty suggestive and borders on being an official, unofficial order. And sure enough, shortly thereafter, John Randolph, who was also a house manager for the Pickering impeachment and therefore worked closely with Nicholson, introduced a resolution in the House calling for an investigation into the conduct of Justice Chase, which was approved and shortly after a committee was formed to look into the matter, beginning a process that took many months and eventually drew in Chief Justice John Marshall. But what, you may ask, was the motivation for this? The court was definitely becoming a less political institution under Marshall's leadership, and for some Republicans, the firing of the midnight judges and the repeal of the 1801 Judiciary Act had been reform enough, but for more radical Republicans, these events were just the beginning. For these Republicans, sometimes referred to as quids, the partisan mellowing of the court and the emergence of an independent judiciary was less important than making an example out of Chase in order to scare the judiciary into becoming more accommodating and less likely to act as a check on Republican ambitions. And to be clear, an urge to politically manipulate courts was not unique to the Republicans alone. As I've discussed in previous episodes, the arch-federalists had attempted to leverage the judiciary for their own advantage, and so, in a sense, maybe turnabout is fair play here, 
except that the quids weren't just racing against the possible return of an opposition party to power, but against the ameliorating influence of John Marshall and the institutional evolution that he was captaining. To head this off, new blood would need to be infused into the courts, and waiting on nature and retirements wouldn't be quick enough. They needed a faster method of purging the courts of Federalists and replacing them with Republicans, and they believed they found just the tool they needed in impeachment. The suggestions I'm making here of the political motivation behind Chase's impeachment as a sort of retaliation for the Marbury decision are not just my personal musings. This was noted at the time by a young Massachusetts senator named John Quincy Adams, who, near the start of Chase's Senate trial, recorded in his diary parts of an impassioned speech delivered by Senator William Branch Giles, which, Adams wrote, treated with the utmost contempt the idea of an independent judiciary, said there was not a word about their independence in the Constitution. The power of impeachment was given without limitation to the House of Representatives. The power of trying impeachment was given equally without limitation to the Senate. And if the judges of the Supreme Court should dare, as they had done, to declare an act of Congress unconstitutional, or to send a mandamus to the Secretary of State, as they had done, it was the unreserved right of the House of Representatives to impeach them, and that of the Senate to remove them for giving such opinions, however honest or sincere they may have been in entertaining them. So following that clear reference to the Marbury case, Adams records Giles' rather more hopeful than factual assertion that impeachment was not a criminal prosecution, it was no prosecution at all. And then Adams finally concludes, I perceive that the impeachment system is to be pursued, and the whole bench of the Supreme Court to be swept away, because their offices are wanted. And in the present state of things, I am convinced it is as easy for Mr. John Randolph and Mr. Giles to do this as to say it. Chase's trial in the Senate still lay in the future. First, the House committee had an investigation to complete, and one accusation of misconduct that they dug up stemmed from a conversation following the sedition trial of the infamously scurrilous polemist James Callender back in 1800, which dragged John Marshall into the whole mess. Unlike Pickering, Chase was determined to contest the allegations, and as rumor reached his ears about what charges he was likely to face, he wrote to Marshall, requesting that he collect eyewitness statements from lawyers who had been on hand at the calendar trial, which had occurred in Richmond. Though Marshall had little sympathy for Chase's lack of emotional restraint on the bench, and, as Gene Smith notes, had devoted considerable energy as Chief Justice to moderating the Marylanders' outspokenness, he agreed to do so, and brought the collected testimony with him to Washington for the February 1804 term. Overall, Marshall was appalled that Chase was being put through the ringer for things that had transpired years ago, and felt that in the heat of a trial, mistakes can happen, and laws might inadvertently be misapplied. And this was in fact the reason there were appellate courts, but what was happening now seemed ridiculous. He summed the witch hunt up this way in a letter. The present doctrine seems to be that a judge giving a legal opinion contrary to the will of the legislature is liable to impeachment.
Soon after, the Chief Justice was deposed about that alleged 1800 conversation, which didn't even involve Marshall directly, but had allegedly taken place within his hearing, in a public lobby of a hotel, and was an exchange primarily between Justice Chase and Bushrod Washington, in which the former supposedly told the latter that if he had known that Calendar was an enemy of Jefferson, he would scarcely have fined him so high. Scandalous, I know. Under oath, Marshall said he vaguely recalled the conversation, but that it shouldn't be taken literally. The justices often joked among themselves, and if he believed for a second that those were Chase's motives for judicial conduct, he'd be the first to denounce him. And the same went for his friend Bushrod, for that matter. If such a thing were said to him, in all seriousness, and he failed to condemn it. The House investigation into Chase's conduct concluded in late March 1804 and issued formal articles of impeachment. Marshall was plainly disturbed by the news, and in a letter to his brother, James, he wrote, I have just received the articles of impeachment against Judge Chase. They are sufficient to alarm the friends of a pure, and of course, an independent judiciary, if among those who rule our land there are any of that description. The Senate would begin to hear testimony on February 9, 1805. A contemporary account of the Senate chamber describes the spectacle this way. On the right and left of the President of the Senate, and in a right line with his chair, there are two rows of benches with desks in front, and the whole front and seats covered with crimson cloth. A temporary semicircle gallery, which consists of three ranges of benches, is elevated on pillars, and the whole front and seats thereof covered with green cloth. In this gallery, ladies are accommodated. On the right and left hand of the president are two boxes of two rows of seats. That facing the president's right is occupied by the managers. That on the other side of the bar for the accused and his counsel. These boxes are covered with blue cloth. The proceedings, however, were not nearly as orderly or grand as the space. There were a total of eight articles of impeachment leveled against Samuel Chase, but there were really only three primary offenses, some of which we've already alluded to, but which we'll go through now in greater detail. The first was his conduct at the treason trial of a man named John Fries. It seems that Fries had been involved in arming men and actively resisting federal tax collectors in Pennsylvania in 1799. The presiding judge at the criminal trial had ruled that the assembly of armed men to prevent the execution of a duly approved act of Congress met the constitutional requirement of levying war, a necessary component for a charge of treason, and denied the attorneys for Fries from presenting evidence from English sources and contemporary congressional debates arguing against that legal interpretation. Fries was subsequently convicted of treason and sentenced to death. Fries' attorneys appealed the conviction, arguing that they should have been allowed to put the definition of treason before a jury. However, at the outset of the new trial... Chase preemptorily declared he reviewed the law in question and agreed with the district court's ruling and handed his opinion to the clerk. Reasonably, Fry's attorneys were dismayed at the case being prejudged in this manner without the court hearing oral arguments, and even though Chase offered to withdraw his opinion and hear arguments on the next day, Fry's counsel refused to proceed 
and Fries refused to find new counsel, and so his conviction was upheld. But don't worry, he received a presidential pardon from John Adams before all was said and done. Now, your initial reaction might be, well, this is awful. Chase should be impeached. But as a quick aside, there is a legitimate legal tradition which differentiates questions of fact from questions of law. A question of fact is one that must be answerable with evidence, such as, did Fries arm the men to resist the tax collectors? Yes or no? This is the type of question juries are charged to answer. Questions of law, on the other hand, like, what actions meet the constitutional definition of treason, must be answered by applying relevant precedent and legal principles, and these are for judges to decide. So yes, the original judge ruled correctly when he didn't allow Fry's attorneys to put the definition of treason on trial. And in a sense, the appeal was a cut-and-dry thing that Chase could probably have decided without hearing oral arguments, though he was certainly out of step with contemporary best practices by choosing to forego them. The complaints related to the calendar trial were similar, if a little more gossipy in nature, and nearly as old as the Fry's case. The central question again was should the sedition trial, which was a criminal proceeding before a jury, be allowed to devolve into a soapbox for Virginia Republicans to put the infamous Sedition Act on trial. Chase's opinion was, nope, it should not. Questions of fact only, thank you very much, and the facts in this case were not in dispute. So Calendar was found guilty and Chase levied him a fine. But as I'd hinted, the Calendar trial had a more salacious flair to it, as the other accusations against Chase will show. For instance, he allegedly declared before leaving his home in Maryland that if Virginians weren't too debased and he could find an honest jury there, he'd make sure Calendar was punished. He allegedly said that it was a pity that the authorities hadn't hanged Calendar when they picked him up for vagrancy. And of course, I've already shared the damning conversation overheard in a hotel lobby over which Marshall had been deposed. And finally, of course, there was the politically charged lecture that Chase delivered to a grand jury in Baltimore, which had been the impetus for the whole circus which was about to unfold. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The defense organized by Chase was led by one of the ablest trial attorneys of the day, Luther Martin, whose tenacity led Jefferson to refer to him as a Federalist Bulldog. The defense team argued that removal required a very high bar indeed, essentially that high crimes and misdemeanors only refer to indictable criminal offenses. Throughout the proceedings, their defense was unified, disciplined, and on message. On the other hand, leading the house managers was John Randolph, who was not a lawyer, and pursued the prosecution along the same lines Giles' Senate speech had foreshadowed, and which Marshall feared which is to say that a judge could essentially be removed because their opinion ran contrary to the legislature. Opinion in the Senate was divided, however. Some senators embraced the House manager's looser, more expressly political idea about why a judge could be removed, while a good number of senators believed judges were guaranteed continuance in office during good behavior, and that high crimes and misdemeanors weren't ideological but required, at a minimum, some sort of willful misconduct in office, with opinion then being further subdivided as to whether these offenses needed to be indictable or not. At the outset, there was probably room for an ably argued case to swing the decision either way. Unfortunately for the House managers, Though he was a very talented speaker and politician, Randolph lacked the logistical and temperamental requirements needed to present a case which bridged the gap between these divergent opinions on impeachment. He couldn't really get past his own partisan enthusiasm in order to realize that if someone wasn't looking through those same rose-colored lenses, the charges he was peddling seemed rather pedestrian. What's more, Randolph's zealous pursuit of these struck the wrong tone in the more deliberative Senate, 
and despite his persistent ringing of the proverbial fire-bell, there was a growing sense among the senators that, yes, there was some smoke here, but flames? Not so much. To a senate chamber full of lawyers, the question Randolph couldn't answer in 1805 was still being asked in an 1899 article for the Virginia Law Register, which was, how could anyone support the proposition that the counsel for Fries had the right to persuade the jury that was law, which the court said at the time was not law? In the case of Calendar, how could it be argued that a jury would have the right to declare a statute passed by the Congress of the United States unconstitutional? But even beyond these questions of legal theory, things only got worse for the prosecution, as Randolph's lack of legal experience manifested itself in ways that undermined the case that he was trying to present, and that a seasoned litigator would never have allowed, such as not knowing in advance what it was that your witnesses were going to say. Edward Corwin records this story. A man named Heath testified that Chase had told the marshal to strike all Democrats from the panel, which was to try calendar, whereupon a second witness called on to confirm that testimony, stated facts which showed the whole story to be a deliberate fabrication. The story that Chase had attacked the administration at Baltimore was also substantially disproved by the manager's own witnesses. John Marshall again was called upon to give his sworn testimony, this time as a witness. Throughout Randolph's questioning, Marshall remained calm, discussing Chase's actions to the extent that he understood them, in the context of what judges have to deal with in often heated trials. Unlike Randolph, Marshall could take the temperature in the room and knew full well that the house managers were flailing. Upset though he was at this political persecution, Marshall knew that he could only hurt Chase's case by unloading on Randolph. Gene Smith also notes that Marshall was aware that his Effort to remove the judiciary from partisanship would suffer a severe setback if, in Chase's defense, he were to take a partisan stance. As the proceedings stumbled towards their conclusion, I have to quote Corwin again, because what he writes is simply amazing. The closing argument was assigned to Randolph. It was an unmitigated disaster for the cause in behalf of which it was pronounced. I feel particularly inadequate to the task of closing this important debate on account of a severe indisposition which I labor under, were Randolph's opening words, but even this prefatory apology gave little warning of the distressing exhibition of incompetence which was to follow. John Quincy Adams again fleshes out the particulars of Randolph's speech in his diary, writing that Randolph began a speech of about two hours and a half, with as little relation to the subject matter as possible, without order, connection, or argument, consisting altogether of the most hackneyed commonplaces of popular declamation, mingled up with panegyrics and invectives upon persons, with a few well-expressed ideas, a few striking figures, much distortion of face and contortion of body, tears, groans, and sobs with occasional pauses for reflection and continual complaints of having lost his notes. On March 1st, 1805, the clerk called the roll, and it was all over but for the crying. Not a single one of the articles reached the two-thirds majority the Constitution required in order to remove Chase. 
Significantly, there were five Republicans who voted not guilty on every article, underlining the burgeoning radical-moderate split within that party. It also demonstrated that the genuine fears of the Federalist judiciary that had existed in 1800 had abated after five years of John Marshall's moderating influence, which made radical action now seem wholly unnecessary. The House managers running around and shouting that the sky was falling, when it plainly was not, had just looked foolish. In fact, John Quincy Adams further records that James Madison laughed at his fellow Republican when he heard that Randolph, once he slunk back to the House after the chase acquittal, had proposed a slew of constitutional amendments purporting to make judge removal easier. For his part, Jefferson was dismayed by the acquittal and worried that impeachment had been made to seem farcical and that this would dissuade others from pursuing it in the future. But in the last analysis, the failure to remove Justice Chase was neither a complete waste of time nor did it have the deleterious effects Jefferson fretted about. Though there would be future confrontations, the failure of the Chase impeachment marks an end to the war on the judiciary, if it could even be called that. In the end, Chase had been acquitted by Republicans considering the rule of law, the Constitution, and the nation ahead of party loyalty. What emerged was a sort of detente in which the Republican elective branches, the Federalist judiciary, and the nation as a whole won something. Acquittal assured judges that they wouldn't be removed from office for politically unpopular opinions. A show of force by Republicans got judges, even Samuel Chase, to retire political moralizing from the bench and adopt the more nonpartisan judicial role we expect today. And both of these developments dovetail to help strengthen the development of an independent federal judiciary, which for over 200 years now has been crucial in preserving individual liberty and a free society by placing the elective branches of government under constitutional restraints. On the same day that the Senate acquitted Samuel Chase, Jefferson wrote to John Marshall to request that he attend the inauguration and again administer the oath of office. And on March 4, 1805, in the shadow of the constitutional struggle that had just unfolded, Marshall swore Jefferson in as president once more. But while the branches of the government were moving away from hostile institutional conflict, and despite the show of ceremonial unity, Jefferson and Marshall's personal and professional conflicts had yet to come to a head. Okay, everybody, that's where we're going to land this one. Thank you all so much for your patience, and thank you so much for listening. I owe a bunch of really good podcasters a shout-out, so if you're looking for some new audio content, definitely check out Dominic Perry's History of Egypt, as well as Eric and Xander from the Reconsider podcast. And of course, if you don't already, make sure you check out the Agora Podcast Network's original content feed. I, of course, regularly produce The Exchange, which can be found there, but there are also other roundtables and discussions there that are really worth your time, like Fifty Shades of Great, where we throw two or more giants of the past into a historical battle royal and judge which are greater, uh, so you should definitely go check them out. Now, finally, I know I mentioned Patreon at the top of the episode, but I'm going to insert it here again because I can't emphasize enough that patrons are the lifeblood of this show. 
and signing up for reoccurring donations at www.patreon.com forward slash ambio means you'll make your nominal donation automatically each time a new episode is released. So you'll never pay for content that you don't receive, and as an incentive, you'll get periodic bonus content. For me, it serves as great motivation for putting out episodes more often. In any case, I thank you very much for your consideration. All right, then. Uh, remember, you can follow American Biography on Facebook and at Twitter at American underscore bio, or you can check out the website www.americanbiography.webs.com. And if you need to get a hold of me for any reason, as always, you can send an email to AmericanBiographyPodcast at gmail.com. Okay, that's it. Thanks again for listening, everybody, and I'll talk to you again soon. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.